Hello, and welcome to Tomorrow Today, an SAE podcast. Today, we're honored to have David Estrada, Chief Legal Officer of Neuro, on the podcast. Hey, David. Hey, Grayson. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time uh, during these hectic times to come on the SAE podcast. And as we get started with this conversation, I feel that it's important to point out that you're proficient in Spanish. Um, like we're teaching my daughter how to uh, speak Spanish now. Uh, so really curious early in your life, and when did you first learn to speak Spanish and what impact has it had on your distinguished career? Well, I started taking Spanish in junior high school. You know, my, my family, if you notice my last name is Estrada or correctly pronounced Estrada. Um, I do have Mexican heritage in, in my family with my, my grandfather, uh, my father's side. Uh, his mother, my dad's mother was Italian. My dad grew up in, in San Francisco and his mother grew up in the North Beach side and his father grew up there. And, and Spanish wasn't learned in my family, but my, my older brother uh, started taking it and I was fascinated when he would come home speaking Spanish words. And so I started taking it in junior high school. I really took to the language and kept studying it from there. Did you take to the language for saying things that you weren't supposed to say in English to get away with something? (laughs) Uh, I think I just really enjoyed, I really enjoyed learning something different. And for me, for some reason, it, it wasn't as much of a challenge as it is for I think a lot of folks. Um, I just liked being able to talk to more people and be exposed to more. There were some people in our extended family who would speak Spanish, so I had some encouragement by when family get-togethers would happen and I could speak a few words. Um, There was just a a fun ability to be able to explore a new path. And are you fluent today in Spanish? I would say I'm a, I'm a, I'm a rusty speaker. For those people who, who know different languages, I think what you experience is you know the language pretty well. You get pretty rusty. In order to really speak fluently again and say you're fluent, you got to go immerse yourself for about two weeks. So if I take a, if I take a trip to a Spanish-speaking country and I'm there for two weeks, that's when I, I really feel like I can call myself fluent again. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. And then, you know, part of, you know, growing up, it's been said that you had a very influential uncle. Uh, who changed the course of your life. How and why did this uncle change your life? Was there a certain thing that this individual did to change it? Yes, this was my my mother's uncle, so my great uncle. His his name was Ernest Hassler, and he he lived in a, a town called Clear Lake, California. It's the largest natural lake that's entirely in California, if you think about Lake Tahoe, is partly in Nevada. Uh, I started going up there when I was a kid at five years of age, and I'd say... The big impact was how incredibly giving he was and how giving of experiences he was. And I describe it um, hanging out at my uncle's house as, house as somewhat like somewhat like Lord of the Flies if you allow kids to have access to motor, motorcycles and guns. <laughs> That's awesome. And was this the uncle that bought you the Commodore 64? It was. Um, if you can imagine the most libertarian type of existence where lots of fun and lots of calamity is at your fingertips and you can learn and find a way to, to survive. Um, you can really, you can really advance a lot in that kind of atmosphere. And that's how it was. Did, did you learn to program on the Commodore 64 based on that background and the whole libertarian ideology? I, I did uh, to tie those two threads together. When I was five years old, he put me on a motorcycle. He aimed it down a hill towards his house and he said, go. 
And so <laughs> I was five years old. I, I was probably barefoot on a little Honda 50. And I aimed toward the house and I and I <laughs> went as fast as you could by turning the throttle because he, he showed me where the throttle was, but I don't know if he showed me where the brakes were. So I, I aimed toward the house and uh, before hitting the house, I, I skidded. Um, this fast forwards into him being the first person to, to strap a Colt 45 to my waist and shoot a shotgun. And then at one point, when I was about nine years old, he, he, wrote, an, he wrote an IOU to me and it said, when you turn 12 years old, I owe you your own shotgun. Now, over, over a certain number of years, we hadn't seen each other, but then the Commodore 64 came out and computers be, personal computers became all the rage. And he got a hold of me and, and he said, hey, I found this IOU um, you know, from a number of years ago. And he said, I'll tell you what, how about instead of a gun, I buy you one of these computers? That's something. That's something else. And the well, the well-rounded upbringing of your uncle really ties into your well-rounded career. Uh, when we first formally met uh, two years ago, you were chief legal officer and policy officer for Bird. I was the co-chair of the autonomous vehicle task force, the city of Beverly Hills, and I really wanted to get Bird into the city. And there were some elected officials that didn't. But it's funny as, as we were reminiscing the other day, um, earlier on in our careers. Uh, you were at YouTube and I was at Epic Records and uh, sure a uh, lot's changed since then. I moved to Florida, you moved back to Northern California. What changes over that time have you really seen emerged in the mobility space and what changes do you see emerging over the next two years? Well, if you, if you go back to my career at YouTube and place it in time, I joined YouTube in late 2006. We were acquired by Google uh, toward the end of the year in 2006. I spent the next four years or so working on the YouTube business and, and help watch that grow. In around 2010 or 11, we were seeing, we were hearing certain rumors that Google was getting interested in self-driving cars. At the time, there really weren't any self-driving cars. Nobody had really heard of this out of academic circles. So in the mainstream, none of us had heard of self-driving cars. I remember actually reading a magazine article during that time where Larry Page, one of the Google founders, was, was interviewed and he was talking about his roots in Michigan. And it was either his father or his grandfather, I'm pretty sure it was his grandfather, worked at an auto plant. And, and this really impacted Larry Page uh, he's always been very, very interested in transportation. So I actually would attribute everything we are seeing in self-driving cars to be very significantly impacted by Larry Page and, and his personal connection to the auto industry. And in this interview, he talked about this idea that cars should be able to see lanes, that cars should be able to bump themselves back into the lane if they start to go out of the lane. And that seemed incredible. It seemed revolutionary when he was talking about that. And then lo and behold, these individuals like Sebastian Thrun were working on much, much more capable self-driving cars. And Larry Page brought that into Google. When I think about how that came into my life, Sebastian, who started Google X and, and the self-driving car project there that they call Chauffeur, was looking for a lawyer who can turn, help turn this into reality on the policy side. And so if we look at from 2011 till now, we've had some beginnings of policy. We've had state policy get far ahead of federal policy. And now you're asking the right question of, well, what happens next? Yeah. And so when you look at it next, 
you're you're at Google X. Uh, you're you're doing the legal stuff. You brought, uh, I believe, Ermson came down to Florida during the Scott administration and passed that bill. I'm really curious. What was it like the first time when you took an elected official, either in Nevada or Florida or the other places or California? When you said, okay, we're, we're going to go for a ride in a self-driving car. I want to know what was your reaction. And what was the first time when you put an elected official in the Firefly car? I think the year was probably, it was probably 2012. And we were working both in Nevada and in California. And the reaction was excitement. It was really interesting working with policymakers for the first time. And this is this is really when I got into public policy was working at Google in around 2011, 2012. And again, placing us back at that time, none of us know what we know now, which is there are many, many self-driving car projects. At that time, it was brand new. Nobody had been in one of these things. So you ask a question, well, how do people react? And it was really interesting when people got in the car, they had a sense of sheer excitement. I didn't see fear, I didn't see doubt, I didn't see concern. I saw excitement for what the future would hold. Did you get pushback from their chiefs of staffs and be like, sir, ma'am, sorry, can't do this? Or were the chief of staffs and those individuals in their orbit okay with it? You know, you might be surprised to know that there wasn't much concern. Uh, first off, the policymakers themselves were always very, very excited to get into the cars. And, and depending on the level. Now, if we get up to, say, a U.S. senator or a, uh, a secretary, then, then you have a lot more serious worry about, about safety. But, but generally speaking, policymakers and their staffs were very, very accommodating and just really excited. Well, that's wonderful. And that's the same the same trend we see today. You're, you're seeing it in the, in the House with, with Chairman Walden and those various other elected officials, and you're seeing it around state officials across the board. So we talked about when policymakers first went in a self-driving car. How about when you first went in a self-driving car? Did, did, did that whole childhood upbringing grow up? And you're like, okay, I've, I've achieved it. We got my IOU, but it's a little different this time. I felt the same way. Uh, and I think perhaps if you look back, perhaps we were naive in that, you know, those of us who were getting into them for the first time were not very concerned about safety. I'll tell you, my first drive in a self-driving car was when I was early on at Google working on the self-driving car project. And Anthony Lewandowski was a key figure in the development of that project. And I got into one of the first Google self-driving cars. It was a modified Prius. And you open the open the door and I got I got into the passenger seat and it was it was a very rough, rough prototype of something you think somebody would hack together in a garage. Um, there was a laptop on the seat that I had to hold in my lap and the laptop would display what the what the lidar and other sensors were seeing. Lots and lots of wires, uh, something very rough. And I got into the car with Anthony. He took me on the first drive. We got onto the freeway and he put it into self-driving mode. And what I found was the, the, the distinct difference was the car went from being driven by Anthony, and there's always a little bit of play in the steering wheel. The vehicle is always moving a little bit, um, not perfectly centered in the lane. The big difference was as soon as he hit the button, the vehicle locked into the center of the lane, and it felt much, much more stable. So if that's actually the feeling I got, was that this was a much more stable drive than when the human was actually in control. 
Well, you, you bring up the point because it eliminates the, I think it's a big acad- epidemic in this country is distracted driving. And when you have a self-driving car, we're going to eliminate distracted driving. I want to go back here for a minute. You talked about Larry Page and his upbringing in Michigan. Do, do you, if Larry Page didn't have the upbringing in Michigan and, and didn't have the the innovative foresight into the future with the, the incredible vision he's had with self-driving cars, do you think we would even be nearly close to where we are today if Larry said, not interested, we're not going to build this program? I don't think so because if you, if you look at it, um, if, you, if you think about Google and the incredible difference Google has made in the world because of the kind of company it is, it's been able to invest in ways other companies haven't been able to. The freedom it has to spend extremely large amounts of money in projects that are going to have a very, very far off ROI is something we haven't seen, something I haven't seen and can't, can't think of comparing to other companies. So if you imagine the idea that the, the profit margin that Google has and the level of success that they've been able to have, plus somebody as visionary as Larry Page thinking he's actually willing to invest in a 10 to 20 year project and invest extremely significantly based on the idea that long-term change will happen and that when it happens, it will have a massive ROI. I don't, I don't imagine that, that other companies and other leaders would have been there. And speaking of visionary leaders, you were part of the team that was negotiating uh, with the late Steve Jobs uh, to put YouTube on the original launch of the iPhone in 2007. So you, you've had experience of um, interacting and working with Larry Page, and then you've had experience um, in negotiating against Steve Jobs, who's a notoriously hard negotiator. What were, what were those two? Like, I would love for you to compare and contrast the, you know, those different conversations. So you're on Larry's side on one, and then you're on the opposite side of Steve. What was that like? And do you feel like that really, you know, changed the way that you operate in the current capacity as a chief legal officer? When I was at YouTube early on before the mobile explosion happened. So imagine it's really hard to imagine, I'm sure for people back in 2006, a touchscreen mobile phone did not exist. Or if it did, it was, you know, some version of an archaic flip phone that maybe had some touch capabilities but there was no iPhone and there was no mobile, there was no mobile distribution of video. Um, Let me say before we did the iPhone deal, we actually did at YouTube, the very first mobile deal we did was with Verizon and think how archaic this was. With, With our old flip phones, the deal we did with Verizon was that every day we at YouTube would select a certain number of videos, a very small number, call it five videos. We would hand select those videos. We would package them and deliver them over to Verizon so that Verizon could host them on their network so that in Verizon's um, video vertical, they had some content. So contrast that with today and what we have in, in, in phones and iPhone was the big differentiator. So here comes along the iPhone and before the launch happened, um, we have to remember that at the time, the edge network was really the, the network that most people were operating on. It would, nobody even had 3G. So there really wasn't any bandwidth where you could really watch video out in the world. You had to be connected to your Wi-Fi. So you would think at the time, even doing, doing a YouTube deal might not make, make much sense. But the way they envisioned it at Apple is 
people would still really enjoy their iPhone connected to a Wi-Fi network and getting this content. So we get into negotiations with Apple and what was really unique about Apple was there wasn't really a an even two-sided kind of negotiation that you find at most companies. It was really, Steve Jobs had a vision. He wanted to get this done in a certain way. And he was going to allow certain partners to engage in their ecosystem. And they selected YouTube because they thought YouTube could create a really magical experience on the iPhone for the very first time for people to watch video. And they wanted to do it in a certain way. And what we ran into was just an entirely different way of doing things in that Generally speaking, if you're at a company like YouTube, if you're going to license out your system to be displayed on another uh, platform, well, you want to know what that display is going to look like. You want to participate in the design of that. What was different about Apple was Apple said, no, you're going to trust us. We're going to do this right. We're Apple. What we will allow you to do is we will allow you to have your two founders, when we're done designing it, come and take a look. So that's how that negotiation went. Wow, so Steve and Chad just went over there after the whole thing was done and said, take it or leave it, essentially? Uh, that, was, that, was, that was the way it was presented, was you guys just need to trust us. Now, I was a pretty um, junior lawyer, or maybe mid-level at the time, and this was very, very different than anything I had dealt with before. And so, you know, being a lawyer wanting to protect my company, I was pushing back. And, and Steve Chen actually had the right out, outlook, I think, that, that got the deal done. He said, look, you know, we can, we can try to do this the normal way, or we can just trust them because they actually are pretty good at doing what they do. And if YouTube is the only third-party app distributed on the iPhone when it launches, that's obviously an incredibly powerful moment for us at YouTube. So for me, what it, what it showed me is... There are times when you just have to take the right risk and and times when you have to not be the most careful lawyer in the world because if you're too careful, you can ruin opportunities. No, that's It's interesting, you're right. We have to have that, that fine balance and we're seeing that fine balance now as we get to the rollout of, you know, eventually the commercialization of self-driving cars. And you mentioned that iPhone was the big differentiator in mobile. Um, completely agree and as we all know, we can all see publicly it changed the game. What do you think the the self define the big self defining product will be in self driving cars, both on the passenger side and on the uh, you know the delivery side? Well, if I if I start with what is the value proposition that we can all agree upon with autonomous vehicles, we start with the value proposition that human drivers are highly fallible. Some of us might enjoy driving, others might not. But the reality is that just in the United States alone, we're at about 40,000 deaths per year because of human error while driving automobiles. So these are not deaths that occur because of a mechanical function, malfunction. They're deaths that occur because we make a mistake. We fall asleep, there's drunk drivers, people get in accidents because of human error. So. What we do know is that autonomous systems can dramatically reduce the number of accidents that occur. Now, if you think about it a step deeper, you think, well, why do people get in cars in the first place? 
and what kinds of trips should we try to replace with autonomous trips? And it turns out that about 40% of the trips we take are to run errands. About 25% of the trips we take are to commute. So think about those errands that you take when you're running around town, often rushing around town. You've got to get to the store. You've got to get groceries. You've, you've got to go pick something up to fix something in your house. A lot of short trips, most of those trips are less than two miles. And for many of those trips, instead of ha having to rush around town in my vehicle where risk is occurring, and, and I increase that risk when I'm rushing, what if instead we stayed at home and the things came to us? If the things came to us with an autonomous vehicle, you'd have a vehicle on the road that operates more safely than the human. And if the things came to us, we could fill our time doing things that are probably more enjoyable and, and that we find more valuable. And I have to say that during this time, during COVID, when many of us or most of us has, have been spending a time with shelter in place orders, commentary that I've heard from many people is how much more productive they feel. And they feel more productive because they're not spending all that time on the road that they used to spend. That's an interesting point. And, and you're right about, you know, stay at home. We saw the top line grocery numbers from Walmart recently uh, this week are, are growing substantially. Um, Amazon numbers from delivery packages are just going bonkers. And which brings us, you know, full circle on your career. Uh, you're the now um, uh, at Neuro, which is doing, you know, autonomous delivery bots. This seems like this COVID situation was custom made for neuro with 40% of you know, trips running errands uh, to the grocery store. Where do you see neuro going uh, as you scale into the future and consumers are getting comfortable the notion of everything being delivered uh, to their homes? With neuro, as we, as we look forward to the future, we see that there are certain verticals that are particularly untapped to begin with. One of those that's very nascent is grocery delivery. And when you look at grocery delivery, you see that it has definitely increased pretty significantly for, for on a percentage basis during the time of COVID, but it's still very small. So before COVID, the percentage of groceries that were delivered to homes was about 2%. And we spend a significant amount on groceries and it comes generally with a pretty significant fee. There may be a, maybe a $20 fee baked into grocery delivery when you consider picking and packing at the grocery store and delivery to your home. Now, what we see is COVID may actually hasten the adoption of grocery delivery. And, and I, I realized this when for the first time, my mom who lives in Benicia, California, she's my barometer of when things are really getting big. When she said that she was using grocery delivery for the first time, and mentioned mentioned companies that do this then i knew that this this was something that is really taking off and of course you know we're going to have a little bit of a we're going to have a little bit of a um a change after covid and i think it may decrease a little bit but but then we'll continue its upward trajectory so we do think that groceries is the perfect category for neuro to get started in and that is where we're focusing now pretty heavily with our partnerships we've announced with both Kroger and Walmart. It's really it's really interesting um, what you said about your mom. Your mom is essentially describing the Peter Lynch theory. And for those who don't know, Peter Lynch ran the Magellan Fund at Fidelity. 
And his theory was if my family's using it or friends are using it, there must be something going on here. So it's really interesting to see that. So what other trends is your mom seeing that's that you're really starting to notice? Lots of bread making. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, isn't it isn't it great we've all landed on bread making? Yeah. Um but but you know, it's interesting. Uh, my mom has been really good as a barometer. It goes back to YouTube days, right? When I joined YouTube, it took a, a short amount of time before she saw YouTube on Great Amer- on Good Morning America. So she knew she knew YouTube was going to be a big hit. And then she's like, okay, my son's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't have to worry about this. Yeah. And so you're, you're, you're doing a lot. Neuro's doing a lot of deliveries in Houston, Texas now uh, for Kroger and Walmart. Why did you choose Houston of all the major metropolitan cities in the United States? Houston offers a a really good combination of of things that make for a successful business and improving our technology. So it starts with the the approach to the legal framework that Texas came up with for self-driving vehicles. Texas is taking an approach that's similar to products liability approach for for all products, which is it starts with you have to have certain qualifications that meet standards in the U.S., such as the vehicle itself must comply with all federal motor vehicle safety standards. And, And after that, it really relies upon the idea that companies will behave responsibly according to the legal liabilities that can occur if they behave irresponsibly. So the, the framework works well for us. And if we put an unsafe product on the road, and if we cause harm, we suffer tremendous damage through not only causing harm and reputational damage to ourselves, but the legal liabilities that flow from that. So, so the legal framework starts, to be, starts out as favorable. Um, and then secondly, the, if you look at um, the diversity of the kinds of roads the breadth that you have in terms of how large Houston is, our technology can learn a lot and grow from you know, very well-organized roads to some smaller roads with lots of traffic. So the technology has a chance to advance. We also saw that we can have a significant impact on safety. Uh, Houston has one of the highest rates of automobile, automobile deaths in the United States. And we looked at this as an opportunity in Houston to provide, hopefully, some benefit to to safer roads. And then some of our partners um, who we were already beginning to do business with are located there. So everything comes together quite well in Houston. That's interesting. And so you mentioned the highest rates of auto deaths in Houston. Was that the pitch when you met with the elected officials there? And you said, look, that, you know, 40 percent of being delivered groceries, we can come in there and help you reduce deaths. That seems to me if I'm the the politician, you're giving me something that can really help me uh, get reelected. Because as we all know, traffic and parking are two of the greatest things in local elections that ensure that you get reelected. Was that did that kind of move those politicians on that um, local level? We talk about the whole value proposition, and, and we've, we've met a number of times with the Houston mayor's office, city council members, and the, and the state delegation, including the governor's office. And we've worked to develop really good relationships focusing on how can we add value. And so when we think about how we can add value, we think that the service itself can provide a really great value when you look at individual neighborhoods, for example. We all know the concept of food deserts. 
where in some neighborhoods there is not a there's not a good grocery store let's say within a couple of miles of your house and so think of those folks who live in food deserts and their alternatives for food are some form of ordering going out for fast food or buying in some cases overpriced groceries from the corner store and it doesn't have that much selection well we can actually bring an affordable delivery service into food deserts where the individuals will have a really wide selection of healthy groceries and affordable because by actually having a vehicle that's an autonomous vehicle um, do the grocery delivery, the cost can be brought down. So it starts out as providing a really, really good service and a valuable service for the end customer. Secondly, we can actually provide a lot of jobs. When you, when you look at building a very large fleet of vehicles to cover a city the size of Houston, you're going to need a lot of vehicles, and those vehicles need to be stored and maintained and cared for. And that can only be done by, by people in the local community. And then when we look at the grocery stores themselves, currently most people are going through grocery stores, picking and packing groceries themselves and taking them home. Well, for our service to work, you need to hire a lot of pickers and packers. And so we can provide those kinds of job opportunities as well. And then we get, of course, to the safety that we can provide to the road. So when you look at the city of Houston, you do see there's a high, there's a high rate of automobile deaths that we can contribute to lowering. But our vehicle itself is a, fa is a safer vehicle. And we've talked a lot about that. So the R2 vehicle, which we fairly recently announced, and we have a, a U.S. federal approval for uh, being the first in the nation to receive one, this vehicle itself, it goes slower. It's a 25-mile-per-hour vehicle. It's lighter weight than most vehicles, particularly delivery vans that could weigh you know, 9,000, 10,000 pounds. Our vehicle weighs about 2,500 pounds. It drives very, very safely. Like I described the very first time I got into an autonomous vehicle, I talked about how it just stuck to the center of the road, uh, drives very safely. It's also narrower than most vehicles. And so you have some narrow city streets in Houston, and our vehicle is going to take up a lot less space on those city streets and move around pedestrians, bicyclists, and other vehicles in a way that uh, can be a lot safer. So we talked about all those benefits. No, it's it's you hit on the, the number one thing I think is the most important takeaway in this is that neuro will create jobs that that's the huge part where i think there's this big misnomer around autonomous companies are going to decimate jobs i'm in the belief that autonomous will create jobs so i thank you for saying like that you're going into the local community you're going to create you're going to create jobs you're going to increase safety this seems like a complete win-win and a no-brainer uh for the local politicians because you're creating value and you're and you're doing what's right for the community uh, and which I commend you for uh, that great vision. And I can't wait to see as you scale that vision across the United States. And as you neuro looks to scale that vision of the autonomous delivery service, what do you foresee as some of the company's greatest challenges? Scaling a service like this is a brand new thing. This is one of those famous zero to one problems that, that are that are hard to solve. So you start with Autonomous technology is, is incredibly new high-tech, and we have all heard about it for about the past 10 years or so, and it's trying to solve a very difficult problem. There are many, many conditions on the road that need to be solved, and we are working very, very hard to solve them. 
So solving the technological problem of, of driving on all roads so that we can provide our service to all people in a community is a difficult scaling problem for all companies in the space and one we're working hard on. Another one is we are, we're building a brand new vehicle. We think the right way to do this service is not by repurposing a gasoline-powered car that was, driven, that was created for a human to drive and for human passengers. We think the right way to do it is to build a purpose-built vehicle that's electric-powered and contributes to lowering CO2 emissions. Now, famously, we've all seen that when companies try to create brand new vehicles, it's a difficult problem to solve. And so you do have the, the execution challenges of taking on a very, very hard problem. But I'd say when you put those two challenges together, that's what gets us very excited about our future and our ability to actually provide a very meaningful service. Because when we solve these two challenges, the, the, the value that we're going to bring to our partners um, to customers and to the world through this kind of a service is going to be very immense. And speaking of solving problems, um, fast forwarding, what's next for technology after autonomy? What do you think the industry with your vast experience will start to tackle next? What moonshot will we go after next? Well, if I, if I start with where we are now, if we just stick to autonomy for a second, Going back to what I said earlier about the nature of driving, I can't emphasize enough that I really think the roads are going to change significantly. Currently, most vehicles are single occupant vehicles and the roads are dramatically overcrowded. And there's some prognostication that they're gonna become more overcrowded as people don't feel comfortable going in public transit, mass transit, they're gonna get back in cars and the roads are gonna be immovable. This has even this has even prompted companies to to start projects that they're calling flying cars, and I think that's what I'll I'll turn to in a second. But before you get to flying cars, you think through well, how can we change how the roads are used? How can we change the very nature of transportation and how frequently we are moving on roads? So I do believe that it's going to be a powerful mode shift that people are going to dramatically turn toward delivery of items and stopping going out on many of these 40% of the trips that they go out on that AV is going to solve. I think the other piece is we don't talk nearly enough about the vehicles that we are going to continue driving. Uh, we're going to be driving cars for a long, long time. And the vehicles that we are going to continue driving are going to have higher degrees of automation. So the, the Tesla vehicle, which has a level two system and can, and can allow you to get in your car and drive coast to coast um, with their autopilot system, is a, it's, it's groundbreaking. And we don't really talk enough about the safety side, the safety improvement that that brings, because there's been plenty of criticism about um, safety faults. So what I would, what I think is going to happen is that kind of a system, a level two system in automobiles will become standard. The sensors and cameras are becoming less and less expensive. The basic autonomy system is going to be something that some companies may license out. So some of the existing AV companies are working to license out systems like this. And I think it will become commonplace. It may become not only commonplace, there's a chance that just like airbags that it becomes required. 
Because if you think on my trip, if I take a three-hour trip up to Clear Lake, and all along that trip, I have opportunities to get distracted and to get tired, to lose focus, and to get in an, into an accident, I'm far, far safer if I have a level two, level two system on my vehicle. You're right about level two. I think it's really interesting when you bring up the, the fact that it may be required at some point. I think you're 100% right because we get distracted on the road, especially on, on long drives. And as you know, based in this post-COVID world, con- consumers will uh, continue to drive more. And, and, and as far as Tesla's concerned, you're 100% right about autopilot. It's groundbreaking. We've all seen the videos of how many lives this system um, has saved. And David, we had this wonderful conversation, and I'm sitting here going through my notes, and uh, earlier I um, passed over it. Uh, You mentioned flying cars. I'd love to hear your perspective on flying cars. After all, um, your alumni, uh, UC Berkeley, called you Tomorrow Man. And some folks say that flying cars are tomorrow, so I would love to hear from Tomorrow Man what your thoughts are on flying cars. Well, I am extremely interested in this. You know, after I worked at Lyft, I, I went immediately to work at a, a brand new startup called Kitty Hawk, which I worked with Sebastian Thrun to help create. And and this was a startup funded by Larry Page. And once again, we're coming back to Larry Page, which is a very, very appropriate place to end this. Larry had gotten really interested in um, the concept of eVTOL probably in, I don't know, the mid, maybe 2005 or six or so. And this was, again, before anybody had thought about it at all. And I draw this parallel to self-driving cars, and I just can't give enough credit to Larry Page. Um, he started to get interested in this, and, and he was looking out long-term at the world, and he thinks, well, let's look at the traffic problem around the world. It's immobile. We here in the United States see the traffic problem in, in cities like Los Angeles. It's, it's horrific. The 405 is terrible, and it's nothing compared to Mumbai. It's nothing compared to parts of Russia. Um, you can sit in traffic in, you can sit in three to four hours of traffic trying to get to work in Mumbai. Um, so the, the future, if the population continues to grow, the concept of Everybody moving around in cars just breaks. It absolutely can't happen. So putting people, more people up in the air for daily movement, I do think is something that is is at least worth exploring. And that's something that, that I think that, again, Larry Page kicked off. And when you look at that, once again, Larry Page was the first to move on this. And in the past five years or, or so, it's hard to count the number of projects trying to create electric VTOL aircraft. The toughest part of this problem is regulatory. And so here in the United States, working with the FAA on the innovation side of creating new airspace rules and requirements for these new airframes with new propulsion systems is extremely difficult. So it's really worth thinking through how this new these new groundbreaking technologies are brushing up against political and policy processes that are not built for speed. 
So if you look at both autonomous vehicles and what's going on with these flying cars, the technology is going to be ready far, far sooner than regulations are ready. Fortunately, on the AV side, what we have is the federal government in the United States is not putting a pre-market approval process in place. So they've, they've allowed the states to determine what should be the appropriate rules for AVs to operate in those states while the federal government looks at rules. However, on flying cars, you must have your, your new kind of air vehicle approved by the FAA before it can fly. So that's going to take quite a while longer. Where would we? Where would the future of mobility be if Larry Page never became interested in self-driving cars and flying cars? And for a matter of fact, he never became the co-founder of a very successful company uh, now known as Alphabet. My guess is we would be at least ten years behind where we are now. I I don't see this this for flying cars and for self-driving cars. You needed massive investment and somebody who believed. And when you match that with what Google had put together in terms of its ability to invest, plus a believer, I really can't see anybody else on the planet who is ready to step in like Larry Page did. Yeah, and he's just an, he's an incredible visionary that's doing an incredible thing, which is good for humanity and, and society. And I want to touch on the political element. Um, well, you touched on the autonomous vehicle political element and the regulatory environment, and we're in really good shape now. But how how do we get i don't want to say loosened restrictions for uh, for flying cars and ev tolls where more experiments can be done there's an individual down here in florida that was able through massive lobbying power get airspace deregulated to a certain height to try and test some things but it's not scalable as we see a lot of billions of dollars pour into into that space and uh, you were previously a kitty hawk uh, how do we get the faa to say okay can we designate a a certain area in the United States where these experiments can be run so we can fast forward this technology because it, I believe that if you make the right political argument today and you say, well, China's going to overtake us on this or another country is that this administration might move really fast to try and ensure that uh, America leads on this innovation. There are the, the airspace management is the, is the long pole. So if you think about um, there, there's essentially two two facets of this uh, regulatory problem that have to be solved. One is, what are the, what are the rules for type certifying the aircraft? For, even though that's a significant problem, it's the far smaller problem. Because in that problem, you're just coming up with rules to certify that the aircraft is safe. The much, much bigger problem is airspace rules, particularly something I didn't speak about enough, when, the, when, the, when these aircraft are also self-flying, when the aircraft don't have pilots. This is what gets tricky because the entire air traffic management system is based upon pilots talking to one another and pilots talking to air traffic control. So that human to human communication system needs to be entirely replaced or supplemented by vehicle to vehicle or vehicle to communication system transmission. Now, a great way to get started is to create lanes. There are, there are, there's plenty of open space in the sky to create lanes and areas in which these vehicles can test out these new systems. And in some case, the federal government started to look at, could they even, um, could they even utilize uh, native lands and do partnerships with native lands to allow these native lands more freedom over their own airspace uh, for the development of these systems? 
Now, you're right to mention China and other parts of the world. The U.S. is frankly falling behind. And so if you look at, for instance, Kitty Hawk, where I used to work, um, Kitty Hawk did a, did a deal with um, the government of New Zealand, um, and they are getting their first aircraft certified in New Zealand, and New Zealand is all in on creating the airspace rules for this. So there is tremendous pressure on United States policymakers to keep up with what uh, is advancing more rapidly in other countries. So how do we get policymakers to start to craft airspace rules? And I really like your idea of creating lanes in the sky. How feasible do you think it is to create lanes in the sky? And up to what altitude do you feel that those lanes would be appropriate? So designing it is is not difficult. And what, what you need to, to look out for is where does commercial aviation occur? Co- commercial aviation, you know, outside of the radii of an airport um, occurs very high up in the air, let's say 30,000 feet. So if what you do is start with, um, start with opening up these lanes that are significantly distanced from airports so that you don't have the low-flying aircraft interfering with it with each other. So let's say that you can't operate within, you know, 20 miles of SFO. And because within 20 miles, the airplanes are going to be coming in at a lower lower level, but, but outside of that, they're at 30,000 feet. And then if you say these aircraft can only, tra- can only travel at um, above ground limits of about 4,000 feet, you, you do significantly distance the aircraft. The second piece is requiring all of these aircraft to have some form of transponder or vehicle-to-vehicle communication system. One of the biggest reasons why it's difficult to get these vehicles off the ground is because of the, uh, the general aviation lobby. The general aviation lobby does not want to be required to have transponders in their aircraft, and so they don't have an ability to deconflict with these aircraft electronically. So that has to be that has to be changed. So you say transponders, first thing that goes through my mind is Pablo Escobar. Do they not want these transponders because they're up to something no good? Or is it just that uh, they're not your Escobars, they're just your hobbyists that, that don't have the necessarily the resources to put those in there? There is there's definitely a a strong strain of freedom to fly in the in the general aviation community where they want to be able to go up into the sky and and fly without being tracked and and i think most of them the vast majority of them just have that feeling like they want freedom and and there's not a lot of crime going on up there but uh certainly it when you're when you're flying free and untracked um there's more room for that there's there's definitely room for that and you mentioned uh these vehicles in the lanes possibly operating at, at four thousand feet um, there was a company that approached us uh, when I was in Beverly Hills on the tech committee about operating a VTOL service over Beverly Hills. And the big thing that the city council had and the tech committee had was noise pollution. How are we going to get over, over that hurdle from a, both from a technological standpoint and from a political standpoint where the individuals can know this is not going to be like an airplane flying over your house? That, that is really significant. So the, um, the, the local issues regarding these eVTOL aircraft are going to be some of the most difficult issues. Uh, what's really fantastic to see is if you, if you compare the noise profile of, say, a helicopter, and now helicopters are banned in most American cities because of noise. Um, if you look at the noise that, uh, from a helicopter, 
it's it's not only extremely loud, but the noise is constant from takeoff, the entire duration of travel and landing. If you look at some of the EV tolls, first the 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 noise itself can be localized to the takeoff and landing place because what they can do is they can elevate straight up and then once they're up in the air they can turn on a forward propulsion system that's very very quiet and and so kitty hawk and some others have created aircraft like that so you can take care of localizing that noise profile and then you can also get it to where the decibels that come off of those electric motors are extremely much much lower than what you get from a helicopter so there's a lot of promise to create a service that would be socially acceptable and is any of the localized noise being shown to politicians like the hey this really works this is not just a tech company uh, promising something where it doesn't work it is. And you see, you know, with some of the with some of the programs out there that talk about being closer to commercialization, there's a lot of excitement amongst some politicians. And in some cases, they're going to the right cities where they currently do have helicopters. So L.A., for example, has a lot of helicopters because that might be the only way to escape that 405. <laughs> so so the politicians in L.A. feel like, well, this is going to be better to have these vehicles than it is to have helicopters. And that can start a trend. David, I just really want to say thank you for coming on the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast and, and taking the time to speak with us. Because as you said, uh, it's important to take the right risk uh, while focusing on safety and the future at the same time. So David, thank you very much uh, for joining us on the broadcast today. Thank you so much, Grayson. Great speaking with you. Thank you for listening to SAE's Tomorrow Today podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate it, share your feedback, we love comments, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information on SAE and SAE podcasts, be sure to visit sae.org forward slash podcast and follow SAE on social media at SAEINTL on Twitter and Instagram and at SAE International on Facebook and LinkedIn. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.